Okay, turning your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 28, we're going to be looking at the last section there. You may know this as the Great Commission. Uh, as you're turning there, I uh, want to call your attention to a prayer that we are going to pray this morning. Uh, when we gather together, we pray for a mission organization that we support. Uh, when we receive our offering uh, on Sunday, a portion of that goes right back outside of these walls uh, to fund missionaries and local community outreaches. And so one of those uh, that we partner with is an organization called Mulberry International. And uh, this organization is located in Ukraine. Now, if you've paid attention to the news uh, at all over the past few weeks, there's some rising tension in Ukraine, especially on the border with Russia, as Russia kind of mobilizes troops in that region. And it seems like tensions are escalating. So we recently received an update from Natasha. She's the director of Mulberry there. And uh, she just let us know. She just called upon us to be praying for their organization. They're staying there. They're going to keep ministering. Their primary ministry is to displaced families there, to minister to them, uh, meet their physical needs with the hopes of being able to share the gospel with them. We know that God is going to continue to bear fruit uh, even in the midst of these trying times, especially in that region. So I want to call upon the church that we be praying for them uh, and those, those rising tensions there uh, that, that the church there would not lose heart. That they would continue to take comfort in Christ and in knowing that God is ultimately in control. And that in the midst of these difficult times, that the gospel would continue to go out and transform lives. So let's pray for them. And then we're going to pray for our hearts as we prepare to receive uh, the word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, we do love you. We thank you for your grace and we thank you for your mercy. Uh, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for his perfect life, his death and his resurrection. He is the reason that we gather here this morning to worship him, uh, to be instructed and to be launched back out into our community to be on mission uh, with him. Lord, we pray for our partners at, at Mulberry International and for Natasha and that organization. Lord, we pray uh, just for the politics at play in that area and the escalating tension, uh, Lord, the hatred that exists there. Lord, would you uh, just bring about calm and peace in that region, uh, Lord, but we, we confidently pray uh, that your work continues on. Would you strengthen the church there? Would you strengthen uh, Mulberry and their mission? God, would you let this be a time that you reap a bountiful harvest in this region? region? Would you uh, give your people there a peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, now as we look to our hearts, as we look to your word and the instruction of your word, God, would you, would you bless us? Uh, would you open our eyes to uh, the goodness of your grace uh, that we would be reinvigorated with the vision that you have for your church to be on mission for you? We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. All right, I have to admit, I have to confess, I made a grave error this morning as a pastor. I get up on Sunday mornings, usually about between 5 a.m. to 5.30 to kind of put the finishing touches on my outline and get prepared, read through everything. And I looked at the outline this morning and I said, man, this is going to be a fast one. I'm going to get through it in a hurry. And then I preached it at the 9 o'clock and ran straight into our Sunday school time. So... Just letting you guys know, I made the, the pastoral error of looking at my outline this morning and say, this is, this is going to be a fast sermon. So it's not. We're going to be here for a little bit. Sorry, not sorry. 
Matthew 28, uh, 16 to 20, God's word says this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, hear this, this is the focus this morning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Here, this is beautiful. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. My hope today is that you family capture a vision A vision of of God's purpose for your life. God has a meaningful purpose for you. For you individually and also for us as his church. Our passage comes this morning from from Matthew's gospel. Uh, The Great Commission is a very well-known section of scripture. It's one that I quote often in my preaching. And I believe this morning, before we get into the text itself, uh, if we understand the context, the historical context around what Matthew's talking about and Matthew's life, it's going to help give us an understanding that Matthew was gripped by this mission, this calling that he had on his life. Who was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. Okay. Now, I want to ask you an honest question this morning. Who here loves the Internal Revenue Service? (laughs) As much as our opinions may vary on the IRS and its practices, (laughs) we we have to agree this. If we if we analyze the IRS compared to like the Roman taxation system, it's it's a much more controlled tax tax system than was found in the Roman Empire. Matthew, we've already concluded this, was a tax collector. We find that in the Bible. And the Jews uh, despised tax collectors. Why? Why did they despise tax collectors? Well, for one, uh, who likes to give their hard-earned money to tax collectors? I don't. Who likes to see, like, when you go to the store and you expect to pay this amount and then they hit total and then there's that little extra line that's added on to the bottom? Oh, man, I wasn't anticipating that extra five bucks. Ten bucks. Or who enjoys seeing that dreaded envelope in the mail that stamped internal revenue service, right? Your heart starts racing a little bit, blood pressure goes up. Who enjoys this, the property tax assessment on an annual basis? You look at it and you're like, why am I paying for that? I don't even use that service. How about the interesting hike in our car tax for 2022? No one enjoys these things, right? No one wants to pay these things. Matthew was a member of a class of folks who collected taxes on behalf of the government. And this is interesting. In this time, uh, the tax collectors were actually paid usually on how much they could kind of tag on top. So the Roman Empire would enlist these men. They would say, go collect taxes. This is what we need you to get. And they were generally paid by saying, well, I'm going to take a little bit more than that. And that's going to be my cut. That's going to be my piece of the pie. Can you see how the people didn't really like the tax collectors? This is a person, though, Matthew, who from, from a worldly standpoint, he probably had it going on for him, right? He probably was pretty well off. The tax collectors were pretty well off. Why else wouldn't the uh, Jews have liked the tax collectors? Well, Matthew himself was actually a Jew. And he was enlisted by 
the, the Roman government, so the oppressors of, of the Jewish nation, to then draw taxes from him. So he was aligning himself as a Jew with the Gentiles. And according to the Pharisees, I mean, he was in a sense kind of lumped into that greatest class of sinners. It's why when they saw Jesus with Matthew, they called him what? A friend of sinners. So we imagine that Matthew, even though he probably doesn't have a good reputation, not probably, he doesn't. He's pretty well off. He's providing for his family. Imagine that man, he's doing well for himself, even if it costs him his reputation. And then along comes this Jewish carpenter, Jesus. He calls out to Levi, it says. Levi was his original name. Come and follow me. Leave everything behind. Again, this, this is the person, from, from a worldly standpoint, he, he had it going on. He had a lucrative job. He had favor with the government. So in a sense, he wielded some power. He could tell people, give me some of your money, and he could take that, right? He could exercise that power. And yet, we find this about Matthew. That, that he was so transformed by his time with Jesus... That he, he recollected all his memories of Jesus' life to share with the rest of us. We have that in Matthew's Gospel. To, his, his purpose was this, to convince us that Jesus truly is, this title, Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew himself was so radically transformed by Jesus' love for him that Jesus would come to this man who was despised and lonely and hated by his own people, and he would call to him, come and follow me. Come and follow me. That he was so radically transformed that he abandoned his life of sin. He left the tax booth and followed Jesus. Became one of Jesus's. Disciples, And so we're confronted then with this question as we look at the historical context. Family, church, are we so radically transformed by Jesus' invitation to follow him regardless of our past mistakes and missteps? Are we radically transformed by Jesus to follow after him? To flee from those, last, those old mistakes that we've made, our, our previous life, all the sin that was stacked up against us? I hope so. I hope we are. And so it brings us to, we've been looking at each week, we've been looking at a core value that we have as a local church. This brings us to our last core value. We went from gospel-centered to spirit-empowered to member-driven. Now we are mission-minded. We are mission-minded. And we'll summarize this simply in this, go, that command of go by Jesus. Go and be disciples that make disciples. Our church's mission statement is very simple. It's this, to be disciples that make disciples. To be disciples that make disciples. This, this statement is basically a shortened version of the Great Commission that we, that we draw from Matthew 28. It should be uh, the vision for every local church, to be disciples that make disciples. It says this in Matthew 28, 19, uh, to the beginning part of 19, it says, and Jesus came and said to them, 
Jesus came and said to them, he says these things, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then he gives this command from his authority, then spells out this command, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Again, Jesus says, because, of, because all authority has been given to me, go and do something, right? Go and do something with this. So logically, I want to kind of pull this apart a little bit. How do we know, the question comes to mind, like how do we know that Jesus has all authority? How do we know that Jesus has all authority? Aside from Scripture, we know that about 2,000 years ago, there was in fact a man named Jesus that was on earth that is so famous, in a sense, that all of the way we measure time is changed. It centers on him being here. Okay? In the 1800s, there was this, this pursuit in, in academia, in the, in the university, to, to find the historical Jesus, they said. So we know that this man lived, named Jesus, and we also believe, as Christians, uh, that this is the inerrant word of God. And so we believe that the gospel accounts, we have four gospel accounts in the beginning of the New Testament, speaks of Jesus. And and we believe that it's true because we believe that the authors were, the human authors were under the inspiration of the Spirit so that every word is intended by God. That's what we believe. And so how do we know that Jesus has all authority? Well, we know for a fact that Jesus once lived... And we know that he has authority if we look to his life that we learn from the Bible, from the scriptures. The Gospels teaches that he is... Here, here's some ways that we know that Jesus had authority. The, the Gospels teach that he was one that taught with authority. That's noted in scripture, that he taught as one who had authority. His words had a different power than the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. I want you to think back to school. Even if you didn't really have a great experience in school, you likely had that one teacher, right? That one teacher that connected with you. That their words were just meaningful. They impacted you. Jesus was much more than even that. He taught with one that says he had authority. We learn from Scripture this, that he healed the blind and the sick. Therefore, he had power and authority over the created order. We know that the kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus did these things. It was the evidence that he is the Son of God. Jesus did this. He calmed the seas. Actually, he walked on the tops of the water. So therefore, Jesus had power and authority over nature. Jesus did this. He cast out demons. They shrank and shivered at at the presence of him. He has power and authority over the spiritual realm, over, over the heavens. Lastly, his authority is proven in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus has authority and power over life and death. Because he defeated death in the grave. Jesus is alive. And so coming from this authority, then flowing from this authority, Jesus then instructs, because we have to to pause, 
we jumped all the way to the end of Matthew, but there's been some stuff that's happened before this. You see, this, this commission that Jesus has given follows right after Jesus died on the cross, went into the grave, and then resurrected from the dead. And the disciples are meeting with Jesus on a mountain, which he had instructed the women who first came and found the empty tomb to, to go back and tell the disciples, meet me on the mountain. And Jesus is there with now these disciples on the mountain. Mountains are significant also in Scripture. If you think back through the Old Testament, God always meets with his people where? On the mountain. So Jesus is on the mountain with his disciples, and he says this, after he's raised from the dead, these men saw him. They knew he died on the cross, that he went into the grave. Now he's raised from the dead, and he says this. The guy that raised from the dead said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Are you going to listen to that guy? Daniel, I want to quote Daniel Doriani. He's a, he's a New Testament scholar. Digging into his commission a little bit. I'm going to explain a little bit because I saw some kind of weird looks on people's faces in the 9 o'clock. So kind of told me I need to, to work through this quote with you a little bit. He says this, The essential commission is not, quote, tell people about Jesus. It's not, quote, preach the gospel. It's not, quote, grow your church. It's not, quote, make converts. Jesus' commission assumes all these. So it understands that these things are essential to the act of making disciples. He says this, but goes deeper, commanding that we make disciples. Being a disciple of Jesus is much deeper than just those things. Matthew was transformed because he was a disciple of Jesus. Making disciples is, is all of those things. It is telling, it is preaching, it is growing, it is making converts. But these are not the only marks of disciple making. It's much deeper than that. The, the apostles, that is the, the disciples became the apostles, the early leaders in the church. They were so radically convinced that Jesus is who he was that they gave up their lives for the church. That's a That's a... A deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus, isn't it? That's what a disciple is. So we come to this question, and I believe in answering this question, we're going to capture the vision uh, that we have for, for the mission of God this morning. This is the question that I want to answer this morning. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? We, we throw that term around a lot in church, and I want to make sure that we understand what exactly that means. And I believe that that will help us as we conclude towards the end of the service. It's going to help us to embrace the vision that God has for us both individually and as a local church. So what is a disciple? Number one, a disciple is identified with Jesus, and we see this in Jesus' statement on baptism. Baptism, our act of baptism, identifies us with Christ. Someone who is a disciple of Jesus is, is not only identified with Jesus, but is joyfully identified with him. We don't just say, yeah, I'm a Christian. We say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. 
Jesus says this in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, family, let me, let me explain baptism a little bit. Our baptism first takes place in the heart before it ever occurs in an outward fashion. Okay, when our hearts are transformed by the power of God's Spirit coming upon us, giving us ears to hear our need for Jesus, this, then, this inward change, this transformation is then made known in the outward act of baptism. That's what we're saying when we're baptized. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm identified with Christ. And, and the act of baptism isn't just a personal act. It's both personal and corporate, okay? It's personal in that I'm, I'm professing my faith for Jesus. So I'm making that known. I'm, I'm going public is, is the term that we use. And it's also corporate, meaning it's centered in the life of the church and that the church is affirming that they believe that you are in fact identified with Jesus. They're saying, yes, I believe that this person is a follower of Christ. It's both of those things. Water baptism is, is the outward sign of an inward transformation. What has gone on in my heart is then put on display for all the world to see. We're identified with Christ. And we must approach baptism with all due weight because in the time of the early church, in the early church when they were publicly affirming their faith through baptism, they were going public with their faith. They're saying, in a sense, because there was, Christians were persecuted, they're saying, I'm willing to die for Christ. I'm going to make this known, and I'm willing to lay down my life for Jesus. I think Paul gives us some great detail around baptism in Romans 6, 1 to 11. He says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I want you to pay attention as we read through this passage of all those identifying statements that Paul makes in this section, like with Christ, with him, those types of things. He said, we were, bur- uh, we were buried, therefore, hear this, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Hear this, for if we, are, if we have been united, what, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified, there it is again, with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has has been set free from sin. Now if we have died, there it is again, with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, that's good news, 
but the life he lives, he lives to God. Hear this. So you, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Mark number one of a disciple is that we are identified with Jesus. Paul is explaining that identification that we have with Jesus that's represented in our baptism, in that public profession of our faith. We are, when we're baptized, we are open and honest in declaring this, I am a Christian. And that identity comes before all other identifying factors in our life. See, in our culture, we like to be identified by things. Like, I'm a husband to Karen. I'm a father to Haley and Jordan. I'm a pastor. Okay, we have all these things that we... But the first identity that we have is this. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. We are identified with Jesus when we hear the gospel, respond in faith, we're filled with his Holy Spirit, we profess this publicly in baptism, and evidence, this is the evidence of our faith, the receipt, the proof, the evidence of our faith in good works or bearing fruit, which now brings us to our next point, point number two. Point two, instilled with his teaching and commands. So Jesus is going to talk about obedience here. Jesus is going to talk about obedience. This is such a crucial part of making uh, disciples, which is the mission. When we say we're mission-minded, we're talking about as a local church that we desire to be see people become disciples of Jesus. is that we instruct those who who are identified with Jesus, we instruct them in his teaching and commands. Okay, we don't don't just have people come and cannonball into the baptistry and then say, hey, hope everything works out for you, right? No, we want you to obey the commands and teachings of Jesus. Not that we want you to, but God commands it. And so we we do this first. We thank God for saving us in grace. What is grace? It's kind of, it's unwarranted favor. It's something we don't deserve. It's a gift that that you get, but you you do not deserve. But if you've convinced yourself that receiving the free gift of grace just leaves you as you are, and there's no no conceivable change in your life, then, then you really don't get the grace of God. And so I encourage you, refer back to that Romans 6 passage that we we just read. Because God, when you use this word, it's going to, hopefully it'll perk your ears up a little bit. God demands that you obey his word. And my intention is not to, to church bash this morning, but I feel like, Oftentimes the church, especially in Western culture, is about making converts. We want people to pray the prayer, but we miss that link of obedience, of calling people to obey the Word of God, to obey the teachings and command of Christ. Hey, God's not asking. God demands that you obey His Word. Our faith is serious. 
Obedience is the response and identification of his disciples. I want to recommend a book to you this morning, and after the service is over, this is a free copy for whoever can get up here first and grab it. You know that I love Pastor John Piper. He wrote this book a number of years ago, and the title of it is What Jesus Demands from the World. Okay, when I first saw this one on the shelf, I walked past it and went, I'm not reading that. It's amazing. Just quick little chapters. There's 50 of them that he outlines here in this book. Don't make like a Walmart Black Friday scene appear for this book, please. It's not a big screen TV, it's just a book, okay? And so he, he summarizes 50 different instructions, commands, or what he calls demands from the teachings of Jesus. And remember, he, he, can, he can demand obedience because we've learned that he has what? He has all authority in heaven and earth. Quoting Piper, who is quoting the Bible, here, here's a few demands that, that I pulled out of the book to share with you. Obviously, I'm not going through all 50 of them. Here's a, here's a demand. You must be born again, John 3. You must repent, Matthew 4.17. You must come to me, Jesus says. You must believe in me, Jesus says. You must love me, Jesus says. You must abide in me, he says. You must listen to me, he says. He says these words. This is crazy. He says, you must take up your cross and follow me. He says, you must worship me in spirit and in truth. Here, I love this one. He says, you must always pray, and he says, don't lose heart. Do you pray like that? I'm not losing heart, Jesus. I believe you. I take you at your word. And then the last one that I want to share with you, he says, and you must love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. In fact, this, this last demand points to a conversation that Jesus had with the teachers of the law. We can summarize uh, much of his teachings and commands in this section, Matthew uh, 22, 36 to 40. Uh, Jesus is asked this question, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which one's the greatest one? Jesus, if you could just summarize it in one command, which is it? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says this is the great and first commandment. So much so, do you remember we read that just a little bit ago when we were dedicating baby Elizabeth in Deuteronomy chapter 6? And Jesus says, and I'll give you this one for free. I got another one for you. He said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus gives this, this mind-blowing moment. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What does he mean in that statement? The law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, all of this points to those two commands. The law and the prophets, Jesus is saying, is all of God's word. Points to those Two commands. The whole of Scripture flows through these. And so we're confronted with this disciple. 
Do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind? And the next one. This is a tough one, if we're honest. Do I love my neighbor as myself? That's a tough command, isn't it? To love other people as much as we love ourselves. Here's the thing, that this plays out in this way. We, we express our love, devotion, and identity that we have in Christ through the way that we live. So we're transformed on the inside, and then that's expressed through action, through the way that we treat people, through loving our neighbor as ourself. Do you, know, do you even know your neighbor, your neighbor right next door to you? Or is that that invisible force field of the lawn just kind of keep you at bay away from them? One of the things I learned when I first moved here to Kentucky, and and, see, I didn't have a lawn in California because it doesn't rain there, okay? But nothing grows. So here I have a lawn. I actually enjoy cutting the grass, but only the front yard because I kind of lose it after the front yard. So my son cuts the backyard. So I cut my grass in the front yard, and... I guess I missed the mark on the property line with my next-door neighbor. I was probably about three inches short. I mean, three inches. On my side, not his side. So he came out the next day because he wanted his lawn to kind of match, and I noticed he cut his grass. But, man, he left that three inches, didn't he? (laughs) Because there's like an invisible force field there that you can't cut this. So I, I made sure next week I went about two feet on his side. Like, come you go, buddy. But I kind of did one of these, you know what I mean? So no, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. <clears throat> if only, we have to, this is love your neighbor. What, what, the, what the text means is that we're engaging with people around us, that we know people, beginning with our neighbor. There's not an invisible force field that keeps us from walk across the grass, shake their hand, get to know them, have them over for a meal. Do you know their name? Do you know your neighbor's name? Have you had them in your... This is stuff that convicts me. Because, man, when I get home, I just want to... I want to pull in and I want to hit the garage button. And I don't want anybody to talk to me. I just want to sit by myself and watch football on TV. But God calls me to something greater than this with more purpose. How purposeless is it, right, to sit there and watch another basketball game? I watched Louisville get shellacked last night yet again. Good thing I can claim another team out on the West Coast. (laughs) No. Arizona. They did beat UCLA the other night, so you got me on that one. Okay. Back to the Word of God. <laughs> so we express our, our love, devotion, and identity in Christ through the way that we live. I want to I illustrate it for you this way. Uh, when I was growing up, my mom gave me chores, right, the dreaded chore list. Okay? And I knew exactly what I had to do every single day because it was basically the same thing. And yet, I was a master of stacking the trash in the kitchen as high as I could possibly get it. Even though my chore every day was to take that out. 
and especially the cereal box, you know, the big, you know, like the, the trash is all mounded up. I got the cereal box, and I'm, it's like a Jenga game. Yeah. <laughs> you're pulling the blocks out, you're putting them on top, and I mean, the trash is kind of waving like this, and I got the cereal box, and it's like, <laughs> and my mom would bust my chops because I didn't take the trash out. She's tough. When my mom kind of got that mom voice going, the hair on the back of your neck would stand up a little bit. And what did I say? Mom, I'm sorry. I love you. She told me one time, she goes, if you were really sorry, you would just take the trash out without me telling you to. You guys ever had that conversation before? We have that conversation a lot in my house. It's kind of the same. We tell God, oh, God, I love you. I'm going to follow you all my days. But I don't really want to do that. I don't really want to love my neighbor. I don't want to really live sacrificially and simply so that I can give to the poor and help. I don't know if I really have time to read your word and entrust it to my heart. We show God that we love him through the way that we act. Through the way that we live in light of what Christ has won for us. I want you to be challenged this morning. I want us to be challenged by the Word of God. So the truth is we're, we're learning from the writing of a tax collector, Matthew, who, who was so radically transformed that he left everything to follow Jesus. He took the time to write down this gospel that we have before us. He was so convinced by the mission of God to redeem and save because of his personal testimony of the grace of Jesus and because of what Matthew had seen with his own. This is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life that we have. It's amazing. And so we end with this. Matthew was trying to convince us of this, that Jesus was God with us, that Jesus is God with us. It brings us to our last point. We're initiated to carry out the mission with him, with Jesus. And we're look at this word, Emmanuel. I'm going to read real quickly to you. Again, a major theme of, of Matthew's gospel is to show that Jesus is, is Emmanuel. He actually begins his gospel with this. With, with a long genealogy connecting Jesus all the way back to Abraham. And then in verse 21, chapter 1, verse 21, he says this. He says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, he will save his people from their sins. He says this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So this was spoken of beforehand. And, and hear this. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Which Matthew defines for us, which means God with us. God with us. Now let's let's read here. Now we're going to the ending of Matthew's gospel. I don't want you to forget, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, so verse 19, then jumping to, to the ending of verse 20. He says he says this, and behold, he's saying, pay attention. Pay attention to this last section. I am with you always. God with us. 
to the end of the age. Jesus is with you. We're not alone in in our mission to bring the gospel to the nations. Jesus said to the nations, brought about through a single nation, through Jesus' perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, and then exploding out now from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, through who? His people. Not just converts, but disciples. A person identified with Jesus, learning and growing in obedience to his word by loving God and loving others. And then one who is also going and making disciples. Do you see the cycle now? Identifying, identified with Jesus, obeying his word, going and make disciples. Repeat until Jesus comes back. Over and over and over again. Family, I want, you, I want you to capture the vision this morning that we have from Scripture. This is what happened. These early followers of Jesus, they were so radically convinced of who Jesus was that they forever changed history. History changed because of Jesus and because of the early church. Against all odds, they proclaimed the gospel. They baptized and they taught. If they did it in the face of imprisonment and death, they obeyed God, Peter says, rather than men. They were transformed from the inside out because they had a gift that no one could strip from them. No one could take Jesus from them. They could be beaten. They could be put in jail. They could be put to death. But nobody could take God away from them because God is with us. It says this in Acts 1, 6-11. So, so, so when they had come together, this is the, these are the last few moments with Jesus before he ascends to heaven. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I don't have time to unpack what that statement means, but really the disciples still, even at this point, don't fully understand what the kingdom of God looks like. And Jesus says to them, see, they, they wanted an earthly kingdom. Jesus is saying, my, my kingdom is far beyond anything you could ever imagine. And I want you to be a part of it. And I'm commissioning you for it. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Underline this next section. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Wow. God with us. And he says this. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What's he saying? Everywhere. My disciples will be everywhere. Says when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taking up, taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. What on earth am I here for? What is my purpose? 
Family, I hope you, you capture the vision of the kingdom of God. I know you're tired. Here, hear me for a second. I'm going to rant at you guys. You guys can watch TV all week long. Take a few more minutes to listen. Capture the vision of Scripture. This is important. It's far more important than the Pro Bowl that's waiting for you, the boringest football game of the year, right? Capture the vision of the kingdom of God. God is doing this. God is making all things new. We're so depressed and dark looking around the times, but God, his promise in scripture is that he's making all things new, that his kingdom is expanding, that people are coming to know Jesus, that their lives are being transformed and changed forevermore, and that we've been called to go on mission with him. What else do you want to do with your life? Jesus is transforming lives in the midst of a dark world. Christian, you were made for this. This purpose to be on mission with Jesus. For his glory. To tell others of the glory of the Lord. And it's not in, in, in condemnation or judgment. But you're saying, come and see. Come and see what Jesus has done for me. Come and see how Jesus has changed my life. Come and see how Jesus has given me hope. Come and see how Jesus has given me purpose. Do you want to change the world? No? No? You want to change the world? That's what the gospel's doing. Anything that happens one person at a time. So the word says the Spirit blows about through the message of the gospel. Lives are transformed by its power. Your life is not meaningless. And that is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so how, how do we do this? Three things. One, you have to be around those in unbelief. You have to, in your life, Christian, be around other people that don't follow after Jesus. You have to get to know your neighbor. You have to connect relationally with those unbelievers. They're human beings. They're people. We talked about the dignity of humanity a few weeks ago. These are people made in the image and likeness of God. I don't think we understand the weight of, of this. Apart from Christ, these people will die and experience an eternity of torment. It's that urgent. And you, you may sit there and say, man, you're dramatic. This is serious. You have to connect relationally with those unbelievers. And you do this, you simply share how Jesus has changed your life. This is what Jesus has done for me. And you share this truth. This is the truth. The objection may be, aren't there many ways? No, because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we share the gospel with people, showing and using our words. And so this morning, I want to invite our band to come forward as we respond. And I hope that you, you